0: I'm sorry you have to endure my nasally voice, but I'm grateful to be here. Levi knocked over a little table with a bowl that had a garage door clicker in it. and My friend called me and said, your garage door is open. And he, I said I was sick, and he said, I'll be praying for you. And Brian caught me out front and was praying for me. And, well, I know a lot of you are too, so thank you as I, hopefully my voice will hold out. Here, Uh, we'll look today at Acts 15, uh, 6 through 11. We'll read um, from 1 through 11. And uh, this is, once again, this is the last time we encounter the Apostle Peter, and this 6 through 11 is his speech at the assembly um, at the Jerusalem Council, as it's often called. So let's pray as we go to God's Word. Uh, Father, will you help us? We are in need of your help. We need your grace. We need your favor. In short, we need you. Will you give us Christ this morning through this word? For in Him we see the Father. May your Spirit testify this day of the truth of the gospel and the veracity of our faith. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the root uh, word Acts fifteen one. 1- So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to take to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the other elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. This may sound like an amateurish question, but I assure you it's not. How can we be saved? By grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus. Enough said. I can go home now, right? (laughs) Except we have difficulty believing that, don't we? But the number of people that I talk to at my other job for Ligonier that struggle with assurance, that are just so insistent that there must be something else. Now, no matter how much I say, rest in Christ. Oh, but, but I have I have this sin. Oh, I don't repent enough. I don't have enough faith. Just, I can't, anybody but me, Right? We just have a hard time believing that it could be that simple. Faith by the grace of Jesus Christ. So we need to hear the gospel of grace through faith apart from works of the law over and over again. So we saw last week the question at hand was, do Gentiles have to be circumcised to be saved? I remember from verse one, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And in verse five, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. It is the condition of the human heart. We want to earn our way toward God. We want to think we have that capacity, at least a little bit in us, to earn our way toward God. But if we really understood the depths of our depravity, and we don't, and if we really understood the heights of God, God's holiness, and we don't, the, the very name of God should lay us bare. So Isaiah said, Woe am I, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. As Peter said in the presence of Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. <clears throat> it's interesting, this question gets settled over and over again here at the Jerusalem Council back in chapter 11, uh, again, over and over again through Acts, uh, the book of Galatians. And yet it keeps popping up. You would think we could uh, move on from this question, but the rebel heart of man, poisoned as it is by the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. uh, We have to to reaffirm the doctrine of justification by faith alone in every generation. But in God's grace, and I think it is God's grace, that we have to resettle that question every generation. Because it points us again and again back to the doctrine of justification by faith alone and gives us the opportunity to proclaim afresh the gospel of free grace. (coughs) Perhaps it would be helpful at this point to ask, why the sudden shift? Uh, Why in the Old Testament were people saved by keeping the law by circumcision, by sacrificing bulls and goats. And now in the New Testament, people are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. I hope you're hearing the extreme error in what I just said. People were not saved by the blood of bulls and goats. People were not saved by the law in the Old Testament any more than we are in the New Testament. They were saved by faith, by believing God. Hebrews 4.10.4 It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Galatians 3.18 For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Romans 4.3 For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. The law was never designed to save anyone, not in the Old Testament, not now. It was only designed to condemn, to point us to our need for Christ, to display the will and character of God, and to offer some constraint against evil. So the error of the circumcision party was not just urging new covenant Christians to partake of old covenant uh, rites and ordinances. Their error was making anything at all apart from the grace of Jesus saving. That's another question altogether as to. Why and how the ordinances change from old to new covenant and Lord willing, we'll consider those more in the future. But for now, I just want to for us to see plainly that the works of the law contribute nothing to our salvation, not Mosaic ordinances, uh, not Ten Commandments. No work of the law will contribute one drop to our salvation. To have salvation, peace with God, entrance into his presence, freedom from guilt and bondage of sin. It is all 100% free grace apart from the works of the law. Galatians 5, 1 through 6. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision So To be clear, the issue is not circumcision, but seeking your justification through circumcision. As we see, um, Timothy was circumcised, and it's not that just the act in itself requires you to keep the whole law, but taking that as a means of your justification is the issue. If you're going to do one, you have to do all of them. You have to keep the whole law if you're going to base your justification in small part on any part of the law. And we cannot stand... On the law. If we want to enter God's presence, we come on the merits of another. God the Son condescended, taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, suffering the miseries of this life, being born under the law, fulfilling the law to every cross T and dotted I, becoming a curse for us by dying on the tree knowing no sin and yet becoming sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He's canceled the record of debt against us by nailing it to the cross. He defeated sin and death by raising again, and he sat down as great David's greater son and is establishing his kingdom. By faith, we're united to him. His righteousness is credited to our account. All our sins are washed away and we live in a newness of life in the hope of glory. Now that's the gospel. That's, and, and in that gospel, there's not one ounce of law as merit before God, as a piece of our standing before God. It's all of Christ and it's all of grace. The only thing we must do and the only condition we have to fulfill is believe, have faith. And even that is not really a condition, nor is it a work it is a gift from God, granted to us when the Holy Spirit turns our hearts from stone into flesh. It's not something, faith is not something we bring to the table. It is the empty hand with which we lay hold of the promises of God. So the assembly is gathered to discuss this matter in Jerusalem, um, to try to arrive at a conclusion. After much debate, Peter stands to offer his speech. His speech is based on something God has already done through the gospel among the Gentiles. He himself had this extraordinary experience with the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius. And he brings that to bear on the on the question. And his speech emphasizes primarily God's saving power, God's work. God's work through the gospel and the grace of the Lord Jesus. So I just want to read his uh, speech here again, beginning in verse seven. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them Of course, here he is referring to Acts chapter 10, the salvation of the Gentiles in Cornelius's house. And if you recall, a hungry Peter was on the roof. A sheet descended. Uh, He had something of a vision or was in something of a trance. sheet descended full of unclean animals. And God said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Happened three times each time. Peter saying, no way. I don't I don't eat unclean food. God's response do not call unclean what I have made clean. And the point, point, of course, is more than just food. It is the Gentiles, the Gospels, to go to the Gentiles. And even while Peter's considering this, Gentiles show up on his doorstep and, and he goes with them to Cornelius' house. When he arrives at the house, he says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And as he preaches the gospel to the Gentiles, they believe, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, even as it had on the Jews at Pentecost. and Peter stayed with them for several days. <clears throat> now Peter here is referring to this story to make this simple point: God has decided. God has decided that salvation will come to the Gentiles apart from works of the law. Just as salvation comes to us apart from the works of the law, it will come to the Gentiles apart from works of the law. And his speech here, again, emphasizes God's actions. And the first way it emphasizes God's action is in God's choice in verse 7. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. God has not here been building a a sort of secret fraternity, a cloistered community. He says, you know, you know, in the early days. So this is as as many as 10 years later between Acts 10 and Acts 15. In the early days, God made a choice among you in your midst. You were fully aware. Remember, Peter made a report to these people in, in chapter uh or at Jerusalem in chapter 11. They knew that this had happened. This event was very public. So, in other words, he's asking, why are we rehashing what we've already seen and known to be the case? <coughs> we've heard of settled science, which I am very skeptical of that phrase, but this is settled doctrine, which I'm not so skeptical about. It's settled because God has spoken. He says, God made a choice among you. God's choice was to bring Gentiles to faith by means of the gospel preached through Peter publicly into the full awareness of the church. So we see here then that salvation is number one by God's choice. He decides where the gospel will go and who will believe. And we see that that happens through the preaching of the gospel. Uh, Praise God for that. I praise God for that. Because I'm not the most convincing of rhetoricians. I'm not good at gathering a crowd. I'm not as skilled in marketing or public relations. I don't know how to start a revolution, nor would I want to if I did. But I do know the gospel. I know and agree with at least one marketing slogan. What you win them with is what you win them to. I know it's not up to me to bring people to faith. I know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So it's liberty. It's liberating to know that that salvation is by God's choice. It's freeing to know we don't have to save people. And it's true that, that 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 liberty, far from removing the impetus for evangelism, actually establishes evangelism. It's encouraging to know as many people as are appointed to eternal life will believe, and whatever the outcome, God's word will not return void. <laughs> so it was God's choice here. This is what we see. It's God's choice. It's not Peter's choice. It's not Cornelius's choice. It's not the apostles choice or the churches. It's God's choice to bring the Gentiles in. Not only has God here made a choice and executed that choice through the preaching of the gospel, he has borne witness to that choice. And that's the second emphasis on God's action. God's witness. In verse eight. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. We can't peer behind the curtain of a human soul and and see whether or not a person's truly believed, but here he says, God knows the heart. God knows whether we've truly believed. And he's testified to the genuineness of the Gentiles' faith by the demonstration of the Holy Spirit. They burst out into speaking in tongues. Even as the Spirit moved in Pentecost, Among the Jews, so he has moved among the Gentiles. And what did God require from the Gentiles before sending the Spirit? Did he require of them circumcision first? Or or, or to keep food laws first? Paul hammers on this point in Galatians 3, verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And even of Abraham in Romans 4, Abraham believed and was reckoned righteous before he was circumcised. The Spirit was made manifest apart from circumcision. This is God's witness. Keep in mind, this is a unique, redemptive historical event. It's not an imperative that everybody speak in tongues to show that they are Christians. The Spirit uniquely bore witness at Pentecost among the Samaritans and at Cornelius' house among the Gentiles. You see how that follows the Great Commission, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. These are unique, uh, redemptive historical events. To show that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just a Jewish thing. It goes to the Samaritans. It goes to the Gentiles. It goes to the ends of the world. The new covenant will be international. So we don't expect tongues or other miraculous manifestations of the spirit in order to bear witness to the truth of the gospel or our belief in it. Uh, First, because that same witness is not required. We're not asking the question, will this people group or that people group be saved or be a part of this whole thing? We know already this is a global gospel. Second, because the sign gifts have ceased with the establishment of the apostolic witness, we no longer require miraculous attestation because the apostolic corpus has been established in the New Testament. And third, the Spirit does bear witness to us that we are children of God. He does so not through signs or through wonders or through a a burning in our bosom. He bears witness by causing us to grow in faith in the promises of God as we see them in Jesus Christ. He bears witness by causing us to grow in love for God's people. He bears witness by causing us to grow in godliness. God's witness further testifies to the inclusion of the Gentiles apart from the works of the law in verse nine. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So the Gentiles were not uh, second class citizens of the kingdom of God. They were fully incorporated among the people of God. Peter's own report to the Jews in Jerusalem in Acts 11 Verses 17 through 18, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So what truly matters is the circumcision of the heart. That's always what's mattered to God. Old Testament or New Testament. It's always been what made people members of the invisible church. To have circumcision of the heart. The Gentiles did not undergo uh, the ritual of blood, which represented purification and the removal of sin in the flesh. But God, he says, cleansed their hearts by faith. Paul says in Galatians six fifteen, for neither circumcision Counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So God has spoken. God has delivered a verdict on this question that they are wrestling with. The Gentiles are included as the people of God. They are saved from the wrath of God, not by works of the law, but by faith alone. This is instructive for us because whether we're trying to settle uh, difficult questions in our own mind or if we're members of a, a body of elders, a session of Presbytery, General Assembly, whatever, the goal is never to arrive at our own conclusions. The goal is to arrive at God's verdict. The goal is to know and believe and proclaim God's verdict. It may not be easy. It may require debate and discussion discussion. To arrive at clarity. God doesn't just give us the answers all the time. He allows us to wrestle with the truth. We might say, I, I wish that God would make it clear by signs and wonders what which way we should go. But in truth we have a more sure word, a better word, written and established in the Word of God and the Scriptures. It's by the scriptures we seek to, to discern and proclaim God's verdict. Now Peter has a very grave concern about this whole question of circumcision. He's wondering, are we not now questioning God himself? Are we challenging God's verdicts? Verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing the yoke on the neck of the disciples? that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. In other words, if you know God's verdict, for surely he's made it plain, why are you putting God to the test? This is a theme in in Acts. Uh, It's a theme, actually, that reaches back into the Old Testament. In Acts 5, when Ananias and Sapphira lie about their contributions, Peter says to uh, Sapphira, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? I like uh, I Howard Marshall's kind of definition of testing here. It reminds me of children. The culprit knows that God has issued some command and disobeys it to see if God was really serious about it and will react or not. If you have young children or if you have, you know, that impulse starts very young to, to test, to see whether there will be a reaction. And if you're a sinner, you know that that impulse doesn't ever quite leave, does it? Stephen accuses the Jewish leaders <coughs> in a similar manner for he stoned in act seven. He says, you stiff neck people uncircumcised in hearts and ears. You always resist the Holy spirit as your fathers did. So do you, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. You have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And Psalm 78 shows in the Old Testament the nation of Israel's inclination to put God to the test. Uh, Psalm 78, 17 through 19 Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their hearts by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? So here again, they're true to character. Some of these Jews, these Judaizing Jews, are putting God to the test. God has spoken, according to Peter, in the the event of Cornelius. A verdict was already rendered but they insist on the circumcision of the Gentiles by placing a yoke on the law uh, of the law on them, a yoke that no person except for Christ was able to carry. Not even the patriarchs, not even the apostles, not even people seeking to require this. And by doing so, they were challenging God himself. Why are you putting to God to the test? Can the law save anyone? So we return to that question we began with. How will we be saved? Peter says in verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. The order seems backwards there, doesn't it? I would have said, They will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as we will. Right. He says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. There's one group of people here who have had the sure testimony of God that they're saved. The Gentiles. They are saved. God testimony says they are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. What about those, though, who are putting their trust in something else in ethnic, cultural or traditional rights or works of the law? Peter wants to emphasize, no, we even Jews will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, not by works of the law. Even Jews will not be able to rely on their own law keeping or their own ethnicity when they before go before God. If they will be saved, they will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. So how will we be saved? I don't know that there's a more basic question, but I don't know if there's another question we should ask more frequently. How will we be saved? Can we believe in the testimony of God in the gospel, that salvation is by pure grace, that really believe in it, really rest in it, not just intellectual assent, but can we rest in that fact on those mornings or evenings when we know we've sinned and we're wrestling with our insufficiency, can we really believe and rest in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or will we put God to the test by asserting our own willfulness and our own self-righteousness? God's verdict has been rendered. We are saved by the pure, unmerited favor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise God.